Bad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. The first glimpses of Chicago winter weather have reared their head, and let's just say I am aggressively not a fan, although it was exciting to start busting out my rather large collection of winter sweaters thanks to my years in New Hampshire. Anyways, moving along, I have a cute little correction from the Martin Van Buren episode. As it turns out, I kept mispronouncing Amistad in that episode. I thought there was an R somewhere in there. I'm not sure how that happened. My notes definitely did not have an R, but in my head, there was an R. There isn't. It is the Amistad case, not the Armistad case, or however I pronounced it. Today, I'm going to be tackling the life and times of our oh-so-well-known 10th president, John Tyler, in the second of two episodes that I'm releasing today due to circumstances that I described in the William Henry Harrison episode. While John Tyler himself almost certainly did not come up in history class, his life has its moments. His study guide includes a famous funeral, an exploding boat, and some light treason. Let's begin. John Tyler is born March 29, 1790. He is from Charles City County, Virginia, just like his predecessor, William Henry Harrison. His parents are John Tyler Sr. and Mary Morrow Armistead Tyler. His father is from a wealthy Virginia family and grows up to be a judge. John Tyler Sr. is also a college roommate of Thomas Jefferson and eventually becomes the governor of Virginia. John Tyler's mother, Mary Morrow Armistead Tyler, also comes from a wealthy Virginia family. John Tyler grows up on the Greenway Plantation, which is a giant fancy estate, which, surprise, surprise, has a ton of slaves. Honestly, that shouldn't have been too much of a surprise, given that John Tyler comes from two extremely wealthy Southern families. As a child, John Tyler is extremely sickly. He's going to have a reputation among the Tyler family for being very frail, and this ill health is going to plague him throughout his adulthood. When he's 11, his mother dies of a stroke. The next year, when he's 12, he is sent to the College of William and Mary to get a higher education because, you know, 12 years old is the exact right time to start college. Fine. Technically, John Tyler was only entering the college prep portion of the College of William and Mary, but it sounds a lot more impressive if we say he started college at the age of 12. Five years later, when he's 17, he graduates from both the college prep portion of William and Mary and the actual college bit. So yeah, he graduated college at the age of 17. No big deal. During his time at William and Mary, he got super into Shakespeare. John Tyler is going to love Shakespeare and quoting Shakespeare for the rest of his life. Once he was done with college, John Tyler needed a career, and he started studying law with his father. Technically, John Tyler passes the bar exam before he's legally old enough to be a lawyer, and all the Virginian lawyers are like, hmm, what do we do? Shall we make an exception for this one kid? We don't really like making exceptions because we're lawyers, but his dad is the governor of Virginia and his BFFs with Thomas Jefferson, and he's a pretty smart kid, so yeah, we'll make the exception. Pretty soon after passing the bar, John Tyler starts working for Virginia's attorney general. So yeah, things are going really great for him. Four years later, in 1811, when he's only 21 years old, John Tyler wins a seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. 
he'll be a member of the Virginia House of Delegates for five years, until 1816. During his time in the House of Delegates, John Tyler is going to get a reputation for being super pro-states' rights and super anti-federalist. Most of John Tyler's ire towards the Federalist government is going to be aimed at the National Bank. John Tyler is so anti-National Bank that he joins a movement with some other Virginia state legislators to censor one of Virginia senators who had voted for the bank. I think we can all agree that that is pretty extreme, John. Pretty soon after he joins the Virginia House of Delegates, the War of 1812 breaks out. During the War of 1812, John Tyler becomes really anti-England. He technically joins a Virginia state militia where he serves as captain. However, the militia, and by extent, John Tyler, never actually sees any action, and it disbands two months later. However, through his somewhat questionable military service, John Tyler does get some land in Iowa in exchange, which is more than a little suspect in my opinion. Also through the War of 1812, John Tyler becomes really good friends with Dolly Madison and goes to a bunch of her parties during the war, although none of these parties are going to be in the White House, which of course got burnt down. The next year, in 1813, John Tyler's father dies. Because John Tyler was the oldest child, he gets the family slaves and most of the family money. It's not so bad being the oldest son. He promptly uses the family money to buy a plantation of his own. Now that John Tyler has a nice inheritance and a nice little house, he decides that it's time for him to get married. After all, he's 23. Pretty soon, he'll be a bachelor, and no one wants that. He decides on Letitia Christian as a wife. Letitia comes from a wealthy Virginia plantation family that was in the same social circles as John Tyler's family. Before the two married, they didn't really know each other all that well. John Tyler had only kissed her hand three weeks before the wedding, and that really was the extent of their physical interaction before getting married. But their relationship worked out pretty well. They had eight kids, seven of whom survived to adulthood, which is an excellent track record by 1800s standards. Their seven surviving children were Mary, Robert, John, Letitia, Elizabeth, Alice, and the very unfortunately named Taswell. While John and Letitia seemed to get along pretty well, she had no interest in Washington, D.C. society, and once he got involved in national government, she very firmly stayed at home raising the children. So let's talk a little bit about how John Tyler got involved in national politics. Basically, in 1816, a member of the Virginia delegation to the House of Representatives died, and John Tyler decided to run for that open congressional seat. In the contest, he had to run against one of his very close political friends, Andrew Stevenson. It literally became a popularity contest, and John Tyler just barely managed to win. Once he won the seat, he served as a member of the Democratic-Republican Party. During his time in the House, John Tyler continued to oppose the concept of a strong national government. He felt that the national government at the time was going to favor small Western farmers over the South and over plantation owners. And as a Southern plantation owner, John Tyler was not about that life. Also, once he entered the House of Representatives, John Tyler started to really, really, really not like this young general whose star was on the rise named Andrew Jackson. John Tyler strongly opposed Andrew Jackson's 1818 invasion of Florida and the fact that during this invasion, he had executed some British 
citizens. The last major thing that John Tyler dealt with during his time in Congress was something known as the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Basically, if you completely forgot your U.S. history from high school, the Missouri Compromise had to do with the fact that Missouri and Maine were trying to enter the United States as states at around the same time. Missouri wanted to be a slave state, which caused a lot of political drama, because if Missouri became a slave state, the balance of slave and free states in the Senate would have been thrown off. Eventually, it was resolved. Missouri joined and as a slave state, and Maine got to come in as a free state. Basically, the Missouri Compromise was about what to do over slavery in new territories that would eventually become new states as the United States continued to move further and further west. The Missouri Compromise set a geographic line for where slavery could exist in new territories and states and basically set up a system of balance between free and slave states. John Tyler was personally pretty torn on the Missouri Compromise. Yes, he did own slaves. This is a very important thing to remember. John Tyler owned human beings and saw nothing wrong in owning human beings. But he did admit that slavery as a concept had issues. He personally never beat his slaves. He did his best to ensure that while he was selling slaves, he did not break up families. But he did own human beings. He also personally wanted slavery to keep moving west. He felt that if slavery moved west, there would be fewer slaves back east, which would allow it to be abolished in Virginia, which was something he politically wanted. However, while he wanted slavery to move west, he also was against the Missouri Compromise. Not because it would let slavery move west, but because he felt like it was an overstep for the federal government to get involved in the slavery question. When it comes to John Tyler and slavery, he's complicated. Obviously, I think he isn't a good individual when it comes to slavery because he was a slave owner. I'm pretty sure he was the last president who owned slaves. Don't quote me on that. I'm probably wrong. But I do think he emphasizes the fact that the slavery question wasn't black and white. And that was like a really bad choice of words. I suddenly realized that. The same year that the Missouri Compromise happened, John Tyler left Congress. He had been dealing with ill health for several years, and he also felt frustrated with the direction that his family was going. He felt like Congress wasn't paying him enough, and that's all just take a second to feel oh so bad for the wealthy plantation owner who wasn't being paid enough by Congress. Yeah, so he felt like he wasn't being paid well enough, which meant that he couldn't educate his family properly. After he left Congress, he started practicing law privately instead. But two years later, John Tyler was getting pretty bored. He ran for state senate in Virginia, no one ran against him, and he won very easily. As soon as he became a state senator, though, national drama began getting pretty exciting because we had that infamous 1824 election between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams where Andrew Jackson won the popular vote but didn't win the electoral college. During the 1824 election, John Tyler actually endorsed another random guy, William Crawford, who actually had technically been the official Democratic nominee, but that endorsement went nowhere. Once the 1824 election was done, John Tyler really focused on reforming the College of William and Mary, which had been dealing with chronic low enrollment, and his reform plans actually were amazingly successful. William and Mary was saved and saw a huge uptick in the number of students who started attending. The next year, in 1825, John Tyler got nominated to be the governor of Virginia. 
At the time, the average citizen didn't vote for the governor of Virginia. The governor was appointed by the state legislature, and he won the position pretty easily and became the governor of Virginia. Except the governor of Virginia was basically a ceremonial position. As governor of Virginia, the only major thing that John Tyler did was give the funeral address for Thomas Jefferson, who, as we recall, had been his dad's college roommate and BFF. Pretty quickly, John Tyler was amazingly bored and wanted to do more. So, in 1827, he managed to get himself nominated to be senator. The current senator at the time, George Randolph, was really unpopular because he kept getting into fights with John Quincy Adams. Members of the Virginia State Legislature, who at the time got to decide who the senator would be, were pro-John Quincy Adams and really wanted to get rid of Randolph. They kept pushing John Tyler to run for the Senate nomination, but Tyler thought that Randolph was doing a perfectly good job as senator. Finally, John Tyler agreed to run to be senator, but only would do it if he was guaranteed a win. When the nomination happened, John Tyler won. So, yeah, he was senator. Woo-hoo! So exciting because, you know, he had really wanted the job. As soon as John Tyler was senator, once again, there was drama, because we have the 1828 election, aka one of the first elections in U.S. history with some real serious mudslinging and name-calling. It was John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson 2.0. John Tyler didn't really like either candidate, but he felt like Andrew Jackson wasn't going to spend so much on internal improvements and wasn't quite as pro-national government, so reluctantly he supported Andrew Jackson. But as soon as Andrew Jackson got elected, John Tyler realized he had made a huge mistake. John Tyler didn't like that Andrew Jackson used the spoiler used the spoil system. He also was super against the tariff of 1828, which Andrew Jackson was perfectly fine continuing, and which eventually led to that whole South Carolina crisis, which I discussed in the Martin Van Buren episode. He also wasn't thrilled with the fact that Andrew Jackson would sometimes get around Senate, the Senate by using things like recess appointments to appoint commissioners. Even so, there were some points of agreement between John Tyler and Andrew Jackson. The biggest was the National Bank. Both Tyler and Andrew Jackson absolutely hated the National Bank and wanted to get rid of it. After Andrew Jackson refused to recharter the National Bank, John Tyler agreed to endorse him for president in 18. 32. However, once Andrew Jackson got reelected in 1832, the two had a major break. This break started with the nullification crisis in South Carolina. John Tyler vetoed Andrew Jackson's force bill, even though it would technically do things that John Tyler really supported, like lowering the 1828 tariff, because John Tyler thought it was an overreach of federal power. And then Andrew Jackson got involved with the National Bank, but this time it was in a way that John Tyler just couldn't support. He didn't like the way that Andrew Jackson was trying to get rid of the National Bank without involving the Senate. Yes, John Tyler hated the National Bank, but he was a stickler for procedure. The Senate had to be consulted, and Andrew Jackson hadn't done that. So, John Tyler voted for resolutions to censure Andrew Jackson. And when that didn't quite work out, John Tyler literally resigned from the Senate to keep from having to vote on a bill that would remove the censor of Andrew Jackson from the official record. 
he lost that as well. So now he's out of a job and Andrew Jackson had won. Things aren't going great for John Tyler, who I'm pretty reluctant to call our hero because he's not exactly a great guy. By 1835, people in the political know start suggesting that maybe John Tyler could be a vice presidential nominee for the anti-Andrew Jackson Whig Party. He does end up getting nominated to be the Whig candidate for vice president for Whig presidential candidate Hugh Lawson White. But in 1836, the Whigs were super disorganized and ran multiple presidential nominees, none of whom won. In the 1836 presidential campaign, John Tyler didn't campaign at all. He did get 47 electoral votes to be vice president despite that. After the election, John Tyler was like, you know what, I'm done, not doing politics anymore, and he ended up buying his family a new property by Williamsburg. Despite stepping back from politics, it did look like he might go back into the Senate in 1839. His senatorial replacements term was ending, and for a second it looked like the Whigs might run him as a Senate nominee, but the Whig party was split over who to choose. After all, John Tyler had left the Democrats because he didn't like Andrew Jackson personally, but on a lot of political things, he still agreed with Andrew Jackson. So the Whigs ended up not running John Tyler, and that Senate seat ended up being unfilled for two years. And then we get to the 1840 presidential election, the election that really did change John Tyler's life. For the 1840 presidential election, John Tyler wanted Henry Clay to be the Whig nominee. That didn't happen. The Whigs instead chose William Henry Harrison, who had the whole being a military hero and not being so obviously anti-slavery thing to fall back on. Once William Henry Harrison was chosen as the presidential nominee, John Tyler was somewhat unexpectedly elected to be the vice presidential nominee. The Whigs' idea was that they needed a Southern slave owner to balance out William Henry Harrison, who was seen as being a somewhat abolitionist Northerner, even though William Henry Harrison was originally from the South and had tried to bring slavery to Indiana Territory, which had been hugely unpopular. Having John Tyler as the vice presidential nominee was pretty random, but at the time, everyone thought the vice president didn't really matter. And how wrong were they? As the vice presidential nominee, John Tyler didn't have a platform. After all, he had been a really strong Democrat before joining the Whigs, and Whig leadership was afraid that if he said anything, he would just alienate voters. He didn't actually campaign during the 1840 election because he thought campaigning was tacky, and once again, leadership was afraid he would alienate voters. It ultimately didn't matter, as we discussed in both the Martin Van Buren and the William Henry Harrison episodes. William Henry Harrison won the 1840 election in the Electoral College by a landslide. As vice president, John Tyler wanted to stay out of politics. He only met with William Henry Harrison once during the presidency, and as soon as the inauguration was over, he went back to his estate in Virginia to be at home with his wife and family. Except then, literally a month into William Henry Harrison's presidency, well, William Henry Harrison died. John Tyler was at home with his family when he found out that William Henry Harrison was dead and immediately rushed back to Washington, D.C. William Henry Harrison's death caused political chaos. As it turned out, the Constitution was extremely unclear about the role of the vice president after the president died and how long the vice president was supposed to serve after the president died and if the vice president would even be the real president if the president died. The cabinet said that John Tyler was just the acting president 
until a real president could be appointed. But John Tyler said, yeah, no, I am fully the president, and had himself sworn in before anyone could say no, in order to avoid any sort of confusion. And that ended up working. John Tyler ended up serving out the rest of William Henry Harrison's term. However, he didn't want to alienate himself from everyone, so he kept William Henry Harrison's old cabinet. He didn't really make any major appointments. He didn't get a new vice president. He was sort of this weird mix of full president and placeholder. On April 9th, he gave an inauguration to Congress, sort of saying that he was president now. After all, he did an inauguration of his own. In his inauguration, he said that he was going to focus on states' rights and classical Jeffersonian democracy, which made some more federalist and more Whiggish members of Congress, like John Quincy Adams, extremely upset. In fact, John Quincy Adams was like, yeah, John Tyler isn't actually president. And Henry Clay said that John Tyler was basically just regent until the next presidential election could happen. As a result, John Tyler gets the historical nickname, His Accidency. But John Tyler felt very strongly that he was the real president. He felt so strongly about this that he refused to open any mail that was addressed to him as the vice president or the acting president. And as much as I don't love John Tyler, that is a level of pettiness that I cannot help but respect. Throughout the rest of his presidential term, John Tyler is going to be very much at odds with the Whigs. As it turns out, politically, he has almost nothing in common with the Whigs. They just both didn't like Andrew Jackson. It was just for very different reasons. The first big issue that John Tyler is going to run into with the Whigs is over economic policy, specifically the National Bank. The Whigs are pushing to recharter the National Bank, and John Tyler almost immediately vetoes this. Henry Clay is furious in response and tries to get the entire presidential cabinet to resign in an attempt to force John Tyler to step down in a proto-impeachment scandal-esque thing. Henry Clay's gambit fails because Daniel Webster, the then Secretary of State, won't step down because he's in the middle of trying to deal with a treaty around Maine's borders. And when it comes to Daniel Webster and foreign policy, don't interrupt a master at work. In response to the whole cabinet drama and John Tyler's refusal to recharter the National Bank, the Whigs expel John Tyler from the Whig Party, which is extremely awkward because as president, he was supposed to represent the Whig Party, and now the president has no party, and I'm pretty sure that has never happened again in U.S. history. Good job, John Tyler. By the summer of 1841, the federal government has a pretty major deficit. They have to come up with some way of raising money. And the easiest way to do that in the 1840s is by raising tariffs. However, John Tyler does not want to raise tariffs above 20% due to political reasons. Eventually, Tyler and the Whigs managed to make some compromise around various internal improvements, which works as a temporary stopgap, but by the beginning of 1842, the government, yet again, is facing a pretty major deficit. Once again, there's a need to raise tariffs. But in 1832, Andrew Jackson had promised the South that tariffs would be lower by the end of a decade. So we're in a bit of a sticky situation. John Tyler's like, hey, let's just end this Whig program 
that would distribute funds to the states and causes yet another break between the Whigs and John Tyler. Some Whigs, like John Quincy Adams, are like, hey, let's impeach the president over this. But it doesn't really go anywhere. And once again, we see the president and the political party that he's technically supposed to belong to wanting to murder each other. And then in the middle of all of this, in September 1842, John Tyler's wife, Letitia, dies of a stroke. Things just couldn't be getting worse for John Tyler. I would say, poor John Tyler, but I actually don't feel that bad for him. Oops. Around this time, when things couldn't be getting any worse, John Tyler does start getting some stuff done in foreign policy, which basically is the one highlight of his not-so-great presidency. We have the 1842 Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which finally figures out the whole Maine-Canada border issue, which had been plaguing U.S. foreign policy since Martin Van Buren's presidency. The Webster-Ashburton Treaty also starts cementing the beginnings of the American-British alliance, which lasts basically until today. Under John Tyler, the U.S. will also sign a treaty that will end the Seminole War. We're also going to start seeing a really massive push of American expansion in the Pacific. Daniel Webster is going to sign a trade treaty with China that gives the United States increased access, and he's also going to apply the Monroe Doctrine to the Hawaiian Islands, which will lay the groundwork for the eventual American annexation of Hawaii. Under John Tyler, the U.S. is also going to start building forts between Iowa and what will eventually become Oregon. So we are seeing increased U.S. military presence in the western bit of the United States. So all of these are pretty large, pretty positive foreign policy movements. However, most of this was done by Daniel Webster, who is a beast at foreign policy and not really directly done by John Tyler. I personally wouldn't hold John Tyler responsible for any of these things. John Tyler also personally really pushes for annexing Texas. Remember, Texas by now is an independent country, but a lot of Texas citizens want to be part of the United States because most of them had initially been Americans, which is what had caused Texas to split off from Mexico in the first place. John Tyler makes annexing Texas a central part of his presidency, but why? Remember, he thought that westward expansion would end slavery in the East. If Texas becomes part of the United States, it would almost certainly be a slave state. This would ease some of the slavery burden in eastern states like Virginia, which John Tyler really, really likes. Also, westward expansion, everyone in this time period really likes that idea. However, the idea of Texas joining the United States was not necessarily a popular one in the early 1840s. England was trying to get influence in an independent Texas and was really trying to push Texas to abolish slavery. Also, many Northerners did not support annexing Texas because of the whole slavery issue. As a result, annexing Texas became sort of a dead issue in the Senate until right until the end of John Tyler's presidency, and we'll talk about why that changed at the very end a little bit later on. The last big thing that happened in John Tyler's presidency was explosive, literally. It's time to talk about the Princeton Explosion. Basically, in February 1844, John Tyler has a fancy ceremonial cruise on this brand new warship, the Princeton, to celebrate part of a treaty around Texas. The Princeton has the world's largest naval gun, which has the ironic name, the Peacemaker. During the ceremonial cruise, the gun malfunctions. 
and explodes. In the course of the explosion, two members of John Tyler's cabinet are killed and several members of the House of Representatives are also killed. One of the members of the House of Representatives who is killed is named David Gardner. And David Gardner had brought along his daughter, Julia, to the cruise. During the explosion, she faints and John Tyler happens to catch her, preventing her from injuring herself further. And after the explosion's done, he sort of helps soothe her and helps her get over the really traumatic death of her father. By the fall of 1844, in addition to this pretty epic and bloody explosion, John Tyler has managed to completely alienate the political party that he belongs to and has completely lost the chance to be the Whig nominee for president in 1844. He tries to rejoin the Democratic Party, but a lot of its members, such as Martin Van Buren, don't trust him. Since neither party will let him be their nominee, he tries to start his own third party, the Democratic Republicans. So, yeah, that's a thing that's going on. But it's not all bad for John Tyler. In the summer of 1844, he remarries. And who does he remarry? But Julia Gardner, that young woman who he had caught in the Princeton explosion. He actually had known Julia for quite some time, before his first wife had even died. Once his first wife had died, he actually had proposed to Julia, and she was like, yeah, no, not into you. He proposes again in 1843, and she's like, yeah, no, I'm 23, and you, sir, are 53, and several of your children are older than I am. However, once the whole, like, Princeton thing had happened, and her father had died, and the two, like, got closer due to their shared trauma, John Tyler proposes once again, and this time Julia accepts, and they get married. Julia and John Tyler have seven children together. David, John Alexander, Julia, Lachlan, Lion, Robert, and Pearl. Their final child, Pearl, was born in 1860, and multiple children of John and Julia's lived well into the 1900s. In fact, John Tyler has two grandchildren who, last I checked, are still alive. Lion Gardner Tyler Jr. and Harrison Ruffin Tyler, who are both children of his child, Lion. So, yeah, good job for you, John Tyler, for fucking so much. Also, Julia Gardner, you probably could have chosen a better husband. Also, John Tyler, why are you chasing after a 23-year-old? You're mad creepy, dude. Anyways, so he's married to a much younger woman. He is running as a third-party candidate, and it becomes really, really clear really, really quickly that John Tyler, the third-party candidate, isn't going to win the 1844 election. And if he keeps running as a third-party candidate, the Whigs, with the nominee of Henry Clay, will win the presidency, which John Tyler does not want because he hates Henry Clay. So John Tyler makes the decision to pull out of the race. As partially a result of this, in November 1844, James Knox Polk, the Democratic candidate, narrowly wins the presidency. James Knox Polk and the Democrats were very pro-annexing Texas, and since they won, John, John Tyler feels like he has a mandate for the whole annexing Texas thing. He forces through a joint resolution in the Senate, which allows Texas to be annexed into the United States and to become a state. John Tyler signs the Texas statehood into law three days before he ends his presidency. Once John Tyler leaves the White House, his life is not over. Not by a long shot. He moves to a plantation in Virginia, which he very pettily names Shorewood Forest because the Whigs had outlawed him. Tragically for John Tyler, most of his neighbors are Whigs, 
and they appoint him to be the overseer of Rhodes, which is kind of a huge slap in the face because it's such a minor office to hold after being president. But John doesn't let that stop him. He takes the position really seriously and, from all accounts, does a pretty good job at it. He spends a lot of time farming, visiting other rich families. He doesn't seek out the political spotlight all that much, except when he speaks at the opening of a monument to Henry Clay and to occasionally speak out about anti-slavery laws like the Wilmot Proviso and to get annoyed whenever anyone says that annexing Texas was their idea and that he had nothing to do with it. Like I already said, he continues fucking Julia like crazy, and they have their last kid in 1860. As the United States gets closer and closer to civil war, John Tyler becomes more and more pro-slavery and less and less pro-union. After John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which I promise will be the subject of a tangent cast someday, his community decides to organize a local militia in case of a slave uprising, and John Tyler becomes captain of that militia. In 1861, right after Abraham Lincoln becomes elected, he joins a peace conference in Virginia in order to figure out what to do about the whole secession thing. He tries to push for some compromise with the Union. However, he's not necessarily pro-compromise. He feels like northern states are getting too much of a say in the whole United States thing, which, huh, funny about that. Isn't it weird how the states with a larger population and most of the industry get more of a say? Weird, that. In February 1861, while working on the peace conference, John Tyler gets chosen to go to the Virginia Succession Convention, and he decides to take up that offer. He ends up presiding over the Virginia Succession Convention. He ends up deciding that succession is the only valid option for Virginia, and he votes for it twice, both on April 4th when it fails, and then again on April 17th when it succeeds, and he really is the one to organize Virginia's entry into the Confederate States. And for that reason, I would consider John Tyler a traitor to the United States. He committed treason. John Tyler then gets a seat in the Confederate Congress and also in the Confederate House of Representatives. He will die before he actually can serve in the second body. He's really sick throughout 1861 and is basically self-medicating with a really nice combination of mercury and whiskey. On January 12, 1862, John Tyler collapses after feeling cold and dizzy. He's moved to his home at Shorewood Forest, but he doesn't improve. On January 18th, he starts suffocating and says, I am going, perhaps it is best, and dies at the age of 71, most likely of a stroke. At the time of his death, John Tyler, despite owning a pretty massive plantation, died in debt because he had a nice little habit of spending way beyond his means. His death was not recognized by the federal government on account of the whole John Tyler being a traitor who joined the Confederacy. However, Jefferson Davis organized a giant state funeral for him. His coffin is draped under the Confederate, not the United States flag, and he is the only U.S. president not to be buried under the United States flag. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap. John Tyler was born to an incredibly wealthy Virginia family. As a child, he was pretty sickly, but pretty smart. He graduated college when he was only 17, which is awesome stuff for my own self-esteem. After college, he became a lawyer. He passed the bar before he was old enough to legally become a lawyer, but no one cared because he was so 
rich. When he was 21, he started out his political career by becoming a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. As a member of the House of Delegates, he got a reputation for being super, super anti-federalists and hating the National Bank. A few years later, he married for the first time. He and his wife had seven kids. After that, he joined the House of Representatives after the previous member of Congress died. During his time in the House, he was known for hating the National Bank, not particularly liking Andrew Jackson, and being pretty torn over the Missouri Compromise. After the Missouri Compromise, he briefly left public office before rejoining the Virginia State Senate and then becoming the governor of Virginia. In 1827, he got bored with the whole being governor of Virginia because there wasn't all that much to do and ran for senator. As a senator, he briefly supported Andrew Jackson's campaign for presidency in 1828, but quickly he and Andrew Jackson had a series of personal falling outs based on Andrew Jackson's reliance of the spoil system and the fact that Andrew Jackson had a tendency to ignore the Senate whenever it suited him. This all culminated with John Tyler resigning from the Senate to avoid having to vote on a bill that would make Andrew Jackson look good. In 1836, John Tyler was chosen as one of many Whig vice presidential nominees. The Whigs, and by extension, John Tyler, did not win the presidency in 1836, but it did put John Tyler on the national radar. In 1840, when William Henry Harrison was the Whig nominee, John Tyler was chosen as his running mate due to his strong Southern bona fides, even though no one really was sure what he believed politically. This shouldn't have mattered. No one cared about vice presidents until William Henry Harrison died a month into his term and suddenly John Tyler was president. At first, there was debate over if the vice president would really be the full-on president, but John Tyler cut that debate short by having himself sworn in as the full-on president. Pretty quickly, John Tyler and leading Whigs, like Henry Clay, started feuding because, as it turned out, John Tyler wasn't really that much of a Whig. He supported more democratic ideas, like not bringing back the National Bank, which culminated in the Whigs expelling John Tyler from the National Whig Party, which is more than a little awkward. John Tyler had some minor political successes, mostly in the Foreign Policy Department, most of which were done by his Secretary of State, Daniel Webster. He did also eventually manage to bring Texas into the United States as a state, but that didn't happen until literally three days before he left office. Pretty soon, it was pretty clear that the Whigs would not be choosing him as their nominee in 1844, so John Tyler made his own new political party, the Democratic Republicans. While he was in the midst of running for a presidency as a third-party candidate, he was at a ceremonial cruise for a brand new warship. The main gun on this warship exploded, killing several people, including a representative, David Gardner. In the midst of this explosion, David Gardner's daughter, Julia, fainted, and John Tyler, who conveniently was a widower now, caught her. It was magic. The two ended up getting married despite having a 30-year age gap. In the election of 1844, John Tyler did not win. Instead, Democratic dark horse and pro-Texas annexation candidate James Knox Polk won, convincing John Tyler that, yeah, he had the support he needed to annex Texas, which is a thing that ended up happening. After leaving the White House, John Tyler settled back down in his Virginia plantation and continued raising his family, which was ever-growing thanks to having a young, hot wife who he loved fucking. As the United States got closer and closer to the Civil War, John Tyler became 
more and more pro-slavery and pro-succession, he ended up becoming a traitor and joining the Confederacy. He served in both the Confederate Congress and the Confederate House of Representatives before dying at the age of 71 in January 1862. So, that is the life of John Tyler. If I were to rank him as a president, yeah, his legacy is not great. He was extremely inept as a president. I mean, he's the only president to be kicked out of his own political party, which gives him negative points. And then we have the whole being a traitor to the nation by joining the Confederacy thing. The only good things I would give him were, one, creating the precedent for what happens when a president dies, which is super important, and the improving relations between the U.S. and England. But for that latter one, that wasn't even him. That was Daniel Webster. So, boo, John Tyler. I think it is fair that we don't really learn about him in U.S. history. For my research for this episode, my main sources were the William Freeling essays for the Miller Center, Gary May's bio on John Tyler, and Edward Carpool's book, John Tyler, The Accidental Presidency. As always, a full bibliography is available on my website, sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next time, I'm going to be diving headlong into the life and career of James Knox Polk, who, in my opinion, is definitely underrated as a president. I've always been really fascinated by him, so I'm really excited to share him with you all. Until then, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. As always, chat with me on social media. Love talking to you. There's the Twitter at sadgirlstudyguide. And for some fun history memes, there's the Instagram at sadgirlstudy. If you want to financially support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Patrons get access to the bi-monthly tangent cast about people, places, and things that didn't quite make it to the full-length episodes. As always, the best way to support the podcast is to let a friend know and to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And as always, let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!